Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that can represent European history like a microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows. In the last episode, we talked about the old Cologne Cathedral, the Cologne Cathedral that was there before the Cologne Cathedral. But what did Cologne look like in the Carolingian period, so the 9th century? So far, we have heard a lot from this time, about kings, emperors, bishops, archbishops and cathedrals, as well as churches, and about empires and peoples, but How did the time look like for the normal people during this time? It's been elusive so far, unfortunately. Which is a pity, because as much as I like to talk about kings, queens, emperors, bishops, and cathedrals, empires, peoples, I am also interested in the everyday life of ordinary people in that time. As you know from previous episodes, I just love to take you as a listener on an imaginary walk through the Cologne of the respective historical era. But as I said, this is a bit difficult for the Carolingian period because of the lack of historical sources. But why did I know so much about Rome Cologne? I have been able to give you a very detailed account of what it looked like here at that time. Well, what the Romans have left behind was built of more sustainable material, so often of stone. Although hidden deep in the earth, but thus also well preserved, corresponding finds from this time give us valuable clues. The Praetorium, the Roman seat of the governors, under the town hall, the Dionysus mosaic, or the Roman city wall that still exist in many places in public in Cologne are good examples for that. A clearly visible sign from this time of the Middle Ages are just the church buildings, which I have already mentioned here extensively. We can see them from afar, even today. They shape the cityscape up until this day. They are built of stone and have simply survived the time better. I don't have at all a narrowed view of just church buildings for that time. They are simply the best source we have. The places where they are located usually have only a rarely changing building history. Thus, often the ruins or remains from the late antiquity have survived here. Just like under the floor of the Cologne Cathedral, there we find ancient, Frankish, early medieval and of course late medieval finds. But enough of complaining. Let's at least try to explore Cologne in Carolingian times. Let's start as we did back then in the north of Cologne, directly in front of the city wall. Not in too good shape anymore, but still better than an ordinary trail, the Roman road coming from Neuss still leads us towards Cologne. From here we can already see the mighty Roman-nesque Cologne Cathedral in the distance, which towers far above the Roman city wall. Likewise, 
we can clearly see the outlines of the churches of St. Cunibert, St. Ursula, St. Severin and St. Gerion. However, these church buildings all still lie outside the city wall. But attentive listeners know very well that the immediate surroundings of the city have always been considered a part of Cologne. But around the church buildings here outside the city walls, together with farm buildings and dwellings, small settlements have been built, where people live who farm here for the churches and monasteries. Monasteries are known to us, regardless of which religion they belong to, as strict spiritual institutions where people live far away from everyday worldly life. Christian monasteries were mostly founded outside of the cities. Especially Charles the Great found them in those places that were to be developed economically and culturally by those very monasteries. For example, in the previously conquered land of the pagan Saxons, which Charles Christianized by all means. But especially in the already existing Episcopal cities like Cologne, not monasteries, but so-called Stifte were founded. What is a Stift? To put it very superficially, they are monasteries, but more in a light diet version. A slimmed-down version, so to speak. And I couldn't find any English translation for that word, really. I'm not that great of a church historian, but I really looked it up in dictionaries or on Wikipedia and tried to find an English corresponding article to it, but there's only the word Stift. Maybe that's a special form of a monastery that only existed in the German cultural territory or realm. I have no idea, but that's the word I will use for this episode. Stift derives from the German word stiften, so in English to donate. For us as lay women and lay men, it would hardly make a difference at first glance whether the people living and acting there were members of a classic monastery or stift, as in St. Cunibert or St. Gerion. First, the similarities of monasteries and stifte should be explained. These are the obvious ones. In both institutions, people participate in a community of faith. Both monasteries and stifte had either only women or only men as members. The difference, however, was that the monks and nuns in the monasteries lived in strict isolation from the world. Turned inward, they also practiced a clear turning away from the actual world. Their everyday life was characterized by, and I hate this word, it's really hard for me to pronounce. The word is asceticism. Uh, they don't eat a lot. Asceticism, I think that's the word. And a strictly regulated daily routine, which usually never took them outside the walls or the area of their property. Of course, with all these hardships... You and I might ask, how did they originally come up with the idea of creating such monasteries in the first place? Like once the apostles around Jesus, nuns and monks should also live in an appropriate community. Poverty, 
chastity and strict obedience are here the guidelines that should shape the life in the monastery. Now, this is said very generalized, because even here there are differences and backgrounds. Firstly, the monastic rules changed over the centuries and over time, and secondly, there were always periods of weakening of these rules for certain monasteries or stifte, and sometimes it was the other way around, that they got stricter. And thirdly, numerous different forms of monastic life were later to develop in Europe, completely different orders with different emphasis, making a brief general description of a monastery almost impossible. Medieval and early modern Europe would later be characterized by monastic orders such as Benedictines, Franciscans, Dominicans, Carthusians, Jesuits, Ursulines, Cistercians, Premonstratensians, I can even pronounce this order in German, and on and on. None of this means anything to you, except that some of these order names sound like Bavarian beer brands. Hey, I sometimes feel the same way. It is good that I still have some time to acquire all this knowledge until the respective brothers and sisters of the order enter the stage of human history, and that I still have time to learn how to pronounce their names in English. Because until the 12th century, the Benedictines were the only monastic order in Western Europe, named after their founder, Benedict of Nursa, who founded the roots of monasticism in Western Europe in the 6th century. A monastery is led by an abbot, elected for life. Even in the time of Charles the Great, it is quite common that strong influences exerted by the secular side on who exactly is elected abbot of a monastery. Why did this happen? Well, after all, many monasteries have been founded and richly endowed as well as equipped by Charles the Great himself or his predecessors and descendants, and thus often vital and strategically important for the local ruler or even for Charles and his successors themselves. The German word for monastery, kloster, comes from the Latin word claustrum, meaning enclosed. This should represent the mental and spiritual seclusion of the monks and nuns in the monastery. Equally, however, that the monastery precinct really could not be left by the monks and nuns. But if you now think that living in a monastery would be like prison, you are wrong. As I said, monasteries were richly endowed, possessed besides a church and courtyard buildings and dormitories, extensive estates, agricultural land, gardens, breweries, wineries, schools, libraries, workshops, and places where they could pursue the arts. It was a strict life, yes, but often better than of the average farmer who had to really work to survive and often might have might die in the next winter or when the next plague or raid came. So much for monasteries, the one form of organized religious life in Europe. Let us now turn to the Stifte. The Stifte faced the strict Benedictine monastic rules with all the commonalities, also with clear differences. This begins with the names of the members of the Stifte. 
they were not nuns or monks, but so-called canonesses, or in the case of men, canons. The members of these spiritual communities, here too strictly separate by gender, tended to live together in structures that are not quite so strict as in the monastery. Here the name of the institution is a program. The donation is administered and managed by canonesses or canons, religiously as well as economically. Like monasteries, Stifte were founded by private individuals, the nobility or powerful rulers such as kings, and at the same time they were richly endowed by them. This is also the origin of their name, coming as mentioned before from the German word Stiften, meaning to donate. For the upkeep of the whole, these Stifte were equipped not only with a place of worship, but also with which goods such as farms or craft workshops and even inns. These canonesses and canons ensured that services were held and could be conducted in the endowed church. On a very practical level, they also made sure that the economic operation of the properties of the Stift ran. But just like the monks and nuns in the monasteries, the members of the Stifte also appeared as scholars, copying texts, composing new handwritten Bibles, or writing chronicles such as the one from the monastery of Fulda, which we quoted here last time. What made the Stifte different from the classic monasteries? The main crucial difference was that the members of a Stift did not live according to the strict Benedictine rules of monasteries. Canonesses and canons were allowed to have private property, which they received, among other things, from the profits of the revenues that the Stift yielded. They also did not take a vow of chastity or poverty, nor did they have to adhere to overly strict rules of conduct such as silence, for example, nor were they bound for life to live at the Stift. If you wanted to marry or even simply return home to the family because that might not be the life you expected in that Stift, this was possible at any time. And that may answer your question why there were monasteries on the one hand and the so-called Stifte on the other. The reason for entering a monastery could be manifold, but with Stifte, the answer was often more obvious. They were ideal places to overload and park surplus family members there, so to speak, so that you didn't have to take care of them yourself. If a large part of this family then died due to illness, accidents or other misfortunes, the corresponding family member could be brought back from the Stift at any time to help the family and to inherit what was left. So, long story short, Stifte were the ideal means to get rid of surplus family members. So it is not surprising that especially the rich and powerful were only too happy to dump their relatives there in the Stift, also to reduce inheritance disputes in particular. If you have too many sons, they will crawl all your life to fight over what will be left of you, I mean, of your property after you have died. That's not nice. Let's just put two of the sons into a, a stift. 
Despite the high infant mortality rate at that time, it sometimes happened that one simply had too many children. So seen from the point of view of parents. The management of a stift was similar to that of a monastery. Here too a so-called provost took over the management of the properties. For the organization of the spiritual tasks served the so-called dean. Why do I find it so difficult to present this exactly, the difference between monasteries and Stifte? Well, firstly, because in the German language, both words, Kloster and Stift, are used as quasi-synonyms for the English word monastery. And because of the sake for your ears, I will, from now on, will just use the word monastery. But only this episode is the exception where I will differ between a monastery and a stift. Secondly, because often the boundaries between the two basic forms blurred, sometimes monasteries loosened up from the strict set of rules so that they were more like a stift but continued to call themselves a classical monastery, so kloster in German. Or there were contrary developments that Stifte increasingly subordinated themselves to the Benedictine rules of a monastery, but officially remained a Stift. Who now may think, uh, he talks again only about churches and monasteries again, should know the following. As spiritual places, these monasteries, churches and Stifte were of course important, but there were also large economic enterprises, owned large areas inside as well as directly outside the city, and were places of education and art. And a not too small percentage of the population in this city was in some way connected to these ecclesiastical institutions. For the 12th century, it is assumed that 10% of all inhabitants lived as clerics in Cologne. This did not include the supply businesses such as servants, bakers, butchers, craftsmen or cooks, for example, who were necessary to provide for these clerics. Whether privately or professionally, clerical life significantly shaped the city for many centuries to come. But soon you will see, not only exclusively, because yes, I would also find that a bit too boring there. Most of these spiritual institutions in Cologne were Stifte and not classical monasteries in form of their type with the Benedictine rules. The Stifte belonged mainly to the large churches we already know. The largest Stifte of this period are well known to us and were situated in front of the Roman city wall. St. Gerion, St. Severin, St. Cunibert and St. Ursula. The latter was a women's stift. In addition, of course, came the new old cathedral in the course of the 9th century. How do we know that there were these stifte in Cologne in the 9th century? Here we have been lucky again. The Archbishop of Cologne, Gunther, had a document issued around the year 866, 
In the document, the archbishop confirmed the respective stifte their property claims and thus renounced himself as the highest church boss of Cologne to want to have access to it. Why he issued this document, of which we do not know the actual content but only its confirmation by the Frankish King Lothar II, we will learn in the next episode. Now we've gone back to one topic forever without actually going into the city itself. I guess that's becoming a tradition on this podcast. In Roman times, we stood here looking at tombstones all day long, and in Merovingian times, we looked at early Christian burial churches for half an eternity. Therefore, we are still standing in the north, outside the city wall. As in Roman times, we enter the city through a side entrance of the Roman North Gate. The portal of this side entrance can still be seen today directly at the Cologne Cathedral. As usual, carts and carriages pass through the large gate in the middle. As we enter this city, however, a completely different picture opens up to us as it did in the times of the Roman Cologne. Here, directly on the Cardo Maximus, today's Hohestraße, There is a dense settlement of buildings. The Roman houses, some of which are still standing, often have a half-timbered extension. Here on the north-south main street of Cologne, there is a lively hustle and bustle. Directly at the beginning of the Hohestraße stands to the left of us until almost completely down to the Rhine River and thus parallel directly at the northern city wall, the new old cathedral, which was built only in the 9th century. Although the cathedral is now located in the northeast corner of the city, the building dominates the whole of Cologne and is visible from every point. For no building within the city even comes close to the size or height of the old cathedral, especially since most of the buildings are half-timbered. Stone buildings, except for the large church buildings such as at the cathedral with the palace of the archbishop or the parish church of St. Columba, cannot be found. Let us follow the long side of the old cathedral, which leads us down to the Rhine. Here, down towards the Rhine, in the direction of the harbor, the buildings become noticeably denser. This is where the merchants, craftsmen and dock workers live. This area of the city is the most densely built and is the youngest part of the city, where in Roman times a tributary of the Rhine flowed along. In Frankish times the tributary had long since silted up, thus the offshore island and the silted up tributary became new building land for the city, which was already used in the Merovingian period, especially in the area of today's Heumarkt. There are drastic differences between the Roman town, which still exists in terms of spatial planning, and the new harbor district that has now been created to the east. The Roman city has retained the rectangular street network despite the extensive loss of Roman building fabric. Here, in the harbor district, the Rhine suburb, however, we find a completely different picture. 
dense to dense and largely arbitrary or following purely topographical guidelines is the building structure here. This character has been preserved until today. Although hardly any of the buildings in this part of the city are older than 60 years nowadays, you can still feel the narrowness of this quarter very closely. Many of the alleys are so narrow that even a small car could hardly pass through. Some alleys are even so narrow that you couldn't even walk through with two people side by side. Oh man, what modern fire protection laws would say to that? To get to this quarter in our little mind game here, we have to squeeze through one of the few gates to the Rhine. Because don't forget the Roman city wall also ran along the banks of the Rhine. But since the Rhine suburb was built in the east, the wall separates the former Roman city from this young harbor quarter. In order to protect the Rhine suburb at least somewhat, probably already in Emperor Constantine's time, walls had been built from the Roman city down to the Rhine at the respective north and south ends of the city. Thus, the Rhine suburb was at least protected from the land side against raids. In this way, a new market quarter was created in the east of Cologne, the quarter that we today mistakenly call the Old Town. Although the actual settlement area from Roman times was more towards the city in the west. Despite the narrowness, many alleys open up to several open small squares where markets could be held. These nowadays include the Altermarkt, the Heumarkt, the Fischmarkt, the Frankenwerft, <laughs> Frankenwerft and the Buttermarkt. Translated, they all mean the Old Market, the Hay Market, the Fish Market, the, the, the Dockyard of the Franks and the Butter Market. Not all of the squares and places listed here already existed at that time or bore their current name, but they are a result of this kind of settlement. Let's turn to the west of the city. To do so, we squeezed through one of the few city gates on the Rhine side. We reached the Hohestraße, the former Cato Maximus. The course of the Hohestraße has not changed much in 2000 years, which I think is really amazing. But like everywhere else in the city, there is dirt and rubbish on the street, then as now. <laughs> the Roman sewage system that once got the dirt out of the city no longer works. It is still there underneath the street level, but nobody knows really what to do with it. The knowledge has simply been lost. That's what I think is so dramatic about that time. The people were not dirtier or dumber than the people of antiquity. They had simply lost access to the knowledge of antiquity in many areas due to the collapse of the Roman Empire, wars, plagues and other horrors. It had taken hundreds of years for people to obtain and perfect these civilizing achievements such as drinking water and sanitation systems in the ancient world. But often in late antiquity, it took only one or two generations of chaos and the failure to pass on the knowledge to the next generation that the technology in question was completely lost. This should also be a warning for us today, not to always take everything for granted. 
But you might say, well, we have the internet, we have globalism, yeah, but what if these two things are gone and you have no one to teach you? Do you know how to change a light bulb? I guess you do, but do you actually know how to produce it or to find the materials for it and what kind of machines you need to assemble it? I don't think so. And then we could continue with how to make a car and how to get gas in an area where you don't have oil at all or electronic batteries. We are. Ah, I hope I made a point. But well, let's go further to the west of the city. Here we are presented with a completely different picture as we have seen in the east of the city. Here the development is much thinner and sparser. Farms with small agricultural areas can be found here and there. Here small farmers grow food or keep even cattle. Roman housing that used to be here has perished and does not exist anymore. So it was turned into farming land, while the majority of the population more settled to the east of the city. Such is the cityscape at this time at the end of the early Middle Ages during the Carolingian period. The west is rather sparsely populated. The further east of the Hohestrasse you went, closer to the Rhine, however, the settlement became increasingly dense until we can only push ourselves through narrow streets in the port district. As in Roman times, Cologne continues to be an important trading and craft town and a place of agricultural produce where it is farmed and sold and traded. Finally, I would like to turn the gaze to the people who lived during that time, the ordinary people to put it that way, who lived here like in Cologne of the early Middle Ages. The early Middle Ages in general were clearly characterized by rural life. There were hardly any towns north of the Alps in that era, and if there were, they had emerged from Roman times as an example of Cologne. Only a tiny fraction of the people in this period lived in cities at all. Most of them will have lived in the countryside in small settlements, villages or hamlets. Cities like Cologne were therefore clear anachronisms of the time, representing a special case. Nevertheless, we can assume that social structures that existed in the countryside can also be roughly transferred to the city. When we think of the Middle Ages, we all have this three-tiered system of estates in mind that we learned in school and history class. Nobility and clergy at the top, and then below the third estate, to which most of the people belonged. But I myself always find that model far too simplified. Society in the Middle Ages was much more complex. Indeed, there were different levels of freedom or lack of freedom. For example, not all peasants were the same, whether fully free, semi-free, bonded, unfree or otherwise, a peasant could possess all these forms of social freedom or lack of freedom. Decisive here were the descent and the property relations. Also with the nobility, it made a difference whether you were now a king or only a small nobleman with a village just as 
one as a member of the clergy, as a monk, was subject to a strict obedience, while if you were an archbishop, you could participate in the power politics with kings, popes and emperors. But let's take a look at the simple people and the kind of classes they could be stuck in. Freemen were usually independent of a feudal lord and could call their own farm or business their own. However, a freeman was not quite so free. Among other things, he was subject to compulsory military service. If the king or the count called for a military campaign, this man had to leave the work at his farm. The family, which was left without a man or adult sons, lost an important worker and in the worst case, the man and his adult sons did not return from the war. Over the course of the Middle Ages, this led many families of the free, out of economic hardship, into bondage. If you were a free man, living under a particularly domineering count, this could also drive you to ruin, because exact rules, how long and how often the count was allowed to call you in his district to war, did not really exist. Thus, the count could drive many freemen into poverty, always declaring a state of war, and then the freemen could not cultivate their fields or pursue their craft for many, many months to come. If the freeman was then broke, the count could often take the land from the now penniless family of the freeman at a ridiculous price and at the same time subjugate him as a bonded man. Charles the Great seems to have tried to prevent this development that the counts directly subordinate to him carried out this practice. However, it can be assumed that um, he had little success with this. In the course of the Middle Ages, the number of freemen was to be very low at the end. And then there was another player who threatened the class of the freemen, the church. The church from time to time instructed its priests to tell the dying freemen at the last anointing on their deathbeds that they would only go to paradise if they bequeathed their farm together with their family to the church. You know the well-known parable of Jesus from the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. It is easier for camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow! This leads us to other forms such as the semi-freeman, freed man and unfree man. Unfree men usually worked on their lord's farm or had received their own piece of land with a farm from which they had to pay off income. Additionally, they had to work a few days a week for the lord of the manor on his farm, without pay of course. Unfree men were directly subordinate to their lord so they could not invoke the jurisdiction of the count or king if they felt that they were treated badly by their lord. However, unfree people could also be set free like slaves in ancient Rome. The semi-freemen and boundmen were a kind of middle ground between freemen and unfree. Now we have talked about classes, but all of this mostly applies only to the male members of society. What about the other half of society, so to speak, the women and the girls?
Basically, of course, the social rank of women and girls was also based on what rank they were born into. If a woman was unfree, then she could only marry with the permission of her lord. However, this meant that it was not too uncommon for unfree couples to go to the arms of the church seeking asylum so that they could still marry. Even the women from the free class hardly had a better existence. There was no room for self-realization here either. Unfortunately, there's also an enormous lack of historical sources, which makes it impossible to make accurate statements about the life of non-noble women in the early Middle Ages. Everyday life will have been determined by survival and the question of how to get through the next winter. Especially pregnancies were an enormous health risk for all women, no matter which social class they belonged to due to the living conditions, the lack of hygiene at the time, and of course the lack of protection. Death in childbirth was unfortunately a common cause of death for many women. The position of the noblewoman had also deteriorated enormously in the Carolingian period. While it was still normal in the times of the Merovingians that women appeared as powerful regents and rich persons, no matter if unmarried or as widows, like our Plectrude from Cologne some episodes before, this was no longer the case at least in the time of Charles the Great. Young noble girls were now given the choice at an early age to either marry or to enter a monastery directly. The monasteries to which especially the king's daughters were virtually shunted off were richly endowed to enable them to live a satisfactory life there, well, as satisfactory as it can be in a monastery. And unfortunately, there's nothing more to say about it for now. How did the people actually talk to each other in Cologne? Linguistically, the city might have had a colorful mixture due to its trade relations. However, the Frankish or Old High German language will have been dominant. This is an interesting development as the Franks in the western part of their empire tended to adopt the language of the predominantly Latinized Gallo-Romans, thus creating the Old French. Despite a large Frankish empire, there was no linguistic unity within it. Latin therefore served for diplomacy and trade. However, what was true of all people in Cologne as well as the rest of the Frankish Empire? They were all Christians. Pagan cults no longer existed after Charles the Great. The Frankish elite and Christian church had gradually displaced them by all means. But there was one small, significant exception. Over the centuries, Christianity had established itself as the all-dominant religion in Cologne, thanks to an interplay with first the Roman Empire and the Church and then with the Frankish crown of the Church, which vigorously promoted the Christian Church. 
but also due to the fact that the church was used in Frankish times for administrative and political management of the empire. Even such today, state things as a birth register took over the churches locally. Thus, little by little, all other religious cults had been displaced. Well, as I said, except for one small religious community, the Jewish communities. For the most part, the Jews in Europe had been able to successfully evade all missionary efforts. As you as attentive listeners of my podcast know, Cologne is home to the oldest proven Jewish community north of the Alps in Europe. As early as the year 321, there was a Jewish community in Cologne. At the time of the recording of this episode, we are in the year 2021, and the city is celebrating this anniversary with numerous events and exhibitions. Back in the year 321, it was a phrase of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, and that's all we know. A sentence, that's all what we know, that he wrote in a letter to the Roman city council in Cologne, mentioning them. During the time of the Romans in Cologne, they held full Roman citizenship as freemen. In Frankish times, as non-Christians, they are considered outsiders. Still, they are nevertheless directly under the protection of the Frankish rulers. That sounds nice and good on paper, but the king can't always be in every place where Jews live at, at the same time to protect them. Especially the church likes to remind its believers that they see in the Jews the murderers of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, putting the the in quotation marks, of course, and not thinking, for example, for a moment that Jesus himself was a Jew all of his life through and through. The question has always arisen as to whether the Jews lived in Cologne throughout. Did they remain in Cologne after the end of Roman rule, or had they moved on? A question that cannot quite be answered so far. It is generally known that in the empire of Charles the Great and his direct successors, Jews appear in their sources as merchants or physicians. But what was Jewish life like in Cologne during this time? Well, also here the source situation for the time of the 8th and 9th century is very poor, but an ecological find could give us a valuable clue here on site. South of the Praetorium, the Roman governor's palace, and thus under today's town hall square, there is a Jewish ritual bath from very ancient times in the depths. That it is located here is no coincidence. Until the early 15th century, today's Rathausplatz, the town hall square, was Cologne's high and late medieval Jewish quarter. The ritual bath was found in 1956 together with the ground walls of the synagogue and other finds from the medieval Jewish quarter, by none other than Otto Doppelfeld, the same gentleman who found the Dionysus mosaic, the Roman Praetorium, and the Frankish tomb under the Cologne Cathedral. The later director of the Roman Germanic Museum had really won the lottery several times during his professional career. That it was rediscovered this Jewish ritual bath in the 1950s means of course one thing. The bath and the synagogue must have disappeared from the surface in the course of history. 
over the centuries, two major pogroms against the Jewish inhabitants in particular shook medieval Cologne. The first time at the end of the 11th century, at the beginning of the First Crusade, when crusaders entered the city on their way to the Holy Land, and the second time in the middle of the 14th century, when the plague swept over Europe. We will, of course, go into detail about these events when we get there chronologically. The ritual bath did not experience the same level of destruction compared to the rest of the Jewish quarter, as it was located underground. According to a Jewish belief, such a ritual bath, a mikvah it is called in Hebrew, had to be filled only with natural water. That is to say, you could not put the water in the basin as a human being. Thus, it was built deeply into the earth so that the groundwater filled the basin there. What exact functions the mikvah had, I would like to talk about in a future episode. But yes, that's exactly why we still have a mikvah in Cologne, under the city hall square. The origins of which date back to the 9th century, indicating that Jews lived in the city at that time. And I know this episode is very long already, but I personally have a deep connection with the mikvah. Do you remember your first memories of your life as a child? The ones you had as a little kid? Where nowadays a whole museum building is currently being built for the Jewish quarter of Cologne and its history, in the 90s they had just simply put a glass pyramid on top of the place of the mikvah. I will post a picture on this on my companion post on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, so you can see what I mean. So they put a glass pyramid on top of this mikvah place. You could then just walk up to the pyramid and look down into the depths and see the mikvah. It is one of my oldest memories that I remember, being a little boy, standing on my toes, grabbing the handrail around it that was still too high above me being still a kid. So it was like I was doing a stretching exercise, having my arms way above my head to grab the handrail, looking down this mikvah and realizing how old this place was, that it had stood for many, many centuries as a symbol of everyday life for the Jewish people in my hometown and learning about what had happened to them in the 14th century and knowing what happened to other Jews in the 20th century in Germany, that made me sad. It was one of the key moments in my life, looking down that mikvah as a boy, that I knew the study of history would be one of my biggest passions in life. <sighs> Got a little emotional this time for me. Actually, it was not my goal to stop so abruptly at this point. But I see that we have reached a considerable length again. Longer than intended, longer than I can babble at a stretch and certainly longer than I have your undivided intention. Therefore, let's leave it for today. With an insight into how Cologne in the times of the Frankish Carolingians might have been. Cologne is flourishing. It is now virtually a center of the Eastern Frankish Empire, which has advanced the Elbe River to the Danes. 
What served me additionally as a source this time? As a specific source for this episode, I used an older book, The Topographie der Stadt Köln, or in English, The Topography of the City of Cologne, by Hermann Koizen from 1910, who was in charge of the Cologne City Archive at that time. Here I'm glad to be a member of the City Library of Cologne. Although the book was reprinted in 1996, it was only available in a second-hand bookshops on the internet for an extremely expensive price. So it's nice to be able to just go to the city library and read through the book there as an alternative, a very cheap alternative. All other books that serve me for this are listed in the show notes. Next time in three weeks, we will, well, um, what are we going to do? Ah yes, we will return to the city as a political actor. Emperor Charles died in 814. What happened to his empire then and what effects did it have on our city? How did the local rulers, especially Archbishop of Cologne, react? You'll find out in the next episode. When Cologne is a city that is strongly desired by several Frankish subkings, like a beloved child between two divorcees. As always, thank you so much for listening. Hey, one quick reminder. Keep in mind that I'd like to do a special episode that I just want to slip in here between the regular episodes. So, do you have any questions for me or about Cologne or about this podcast? Then feel free to ask me and I'll be happy to answer. You can do this by email at thofcgn at gmx.de or um, to be on the safe side I have also put the exact email address in the descriptions or in the show notes or you can send me a direct message via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter you can also find the links in the show notes and if you all don't have any questions and you don't send me any that's okay too then we'll just go on as if nothing happened it's not the end of the world. So, thank you for listening. Dankeschön. Please recommend me further to your friends and family. And auf Wiedersehen.